Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you're the speaking God, the God who loves to speak truth into your people's hearts, the God who loves to speak of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that by the power of your Spirit now we would hear your voice through your word. You'd speak to us personally, you'd speak to us corporately as churches, you'd speak to us as your people gathered here tonight, into our hearts what we need to hear that we might live for the praise of Jesus' glorious grace. Amen. It would be a great help if you could turn back to our 1 Corinthians 15, that passage that we had read a few moments ago. Now, I think I must have been about 12 years old. I was sitting at my father's desk on the phone, telephone to a friend. Some of you are so young, you won't know this as a concept. It was the days when not everyone had their own phone, and the phones we had were attached to the wall with a wire. And I was sitting uh, there chatting away to a friend, feet up on a desk, and um, I suddenly spotted a parcel. Now, I'm quite nosy, and uh, there was this parcel in the middle of my father's desk, about four inches, about that, that wide, by that wide, by that wide, wrapped in brown paper, a cube, no, no distinguishing markings on it, just, just his address. And so when I got off the phone, I, I called to my dad, who was in the kitchen. I said, Dad, that was the parcel on your desk. And he came back, quick as a flash, it's your grandfather. See, uh, two weeks later, earlier, my, uh, my grandfather had died. And I'd attended his funeral with my father at the Creme. And as the curtain had been closed, the coffin would have been then taken away by the attendants to the cremator which really is just another way of saying incinerator, but we don't like the term incinerator. We tend to associate that with rubbish, so we call it the cremator. And the uh, guy who ran the creme at Preston, where I used to be in ministry, told me the cremator has to reach a temperature of 750 degrees centigrade before the doors will open and the coffin is put in. And pretty much at that temperature, as soon as it goes in, everything there burns up very rapidly contents and all. And then tide, that's uh, the Welsh for grandfather, my tide, would have been uh, poured into a pot and uh, once he'd cooled down a bit, popped into a box, weighed, and he was considerably lighter now, which is just as well when you consider postage, wrapped up and posted to my dad. And there he was on the desk. And that's that. Is it? Is that it? Is that all there is? That's what a lot of people believe. That's it. There's the remains of Tide on my desk. Apparently you can get made into things now. You could get your relatives made into a nice set of earrings, an ornament for the mantelpiece, because that's all there is. That's certainly all there is for the humanist. The uh, Humanist Society slogan says, for the one life we all have. And as the journalist Polly Toynbee from The Guardian, president of the British Humanist Society, says, the humanist view of life is progressive and optimistic, in awe of human potential, living without fear of judgment and death, finding enough purpose and meaning in life, love, and leaving a good legacy. Which is kind of sad, really, isn't it? Because also on their website, it records the death of the last president of the Humanist Society, Linda Smith age 48, from ovarian cancer. And as I look at human potential and I look out on our world, there doesn't seem to be any more shortage of news this year than there was last year. We don't seem to be any better at loving one another or caring for our planet or even doing the decent thing. Our potential doesn't seem to be getting us anywhere. 
Is that it? We're it? This life is all there is? Well, fortunately, that's not the case. There is life after death. And not just some spiritual life floating around somewhere in the, in the nothingness at one with yourself. No real life. Life as life exists in this world, but totally different in that it is perfectly good and perfectly pleasurable forever. It's a life that will come into being on the day when all people are raised from the dead. Uh, The Lord Jesus Christ himself taught about that day. He said this in John's Gospel, chapter 5 and verse 28. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his, that's Jesus' voice, and come out. Those who've done good will rise to live, and those who've done evil will rise to be condemned. Therefore, my grandfather's final breath was not the last moment of his life. Polly Toynbee's final breath will not be the last moment of her life. Your final breath will not be the last moment of your life. One day, you'll be raised from the dead to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Well, because Jesus was raised. That's the argument at the heart of this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. If you're you're here and you're you're not yet a Christian, that might be quite a surprise to you. Tonight, we're not just going to be talking about Jesus' resurrection from the dead in the past, as though that was strange enough. What we're going to be claiming is that we're all going to be raised from the dead in the future, and that's really going to freak you out. But, But that's the glorious truth here. And for those of us who do know the Lord Jesus Christ... 1 Corinthians 15 says it's a vision of that day that will keep us going today. It's a vision of that day that will order our priorities today. And maybe it's because that day has drifted a little bit from our consciousness that today seems such a struggle. Uh, As we dive into this letter, uh, let's just get our bearings. You'll know this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church in Corinth. It's a church with sheds of problems. But in the second half of the letter, he answers some questions they appear to have written to him about. And he ends the letter with probably the biggest question. Have a look at chapter 15 and verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. He ends by reminding them about the heart of the good news of Jesus. See, the church in Corinth, they could go off track on pretty much anything else, but if they lose this, then will they lose everything. Do you see how Paul says that in verse 2? By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. And the heart of the issue in this chapter is not primarily Jesus' resurrection from the dead. No, it is the resurrection of all people from the dead on the day Jesus returns to judge the world. And the chapter ends in verse 58. Here's our application for tonight. This is where we're going to end up. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So the beginning of the chapter, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, you believe in vain. At the end of the chapter, if there's not a glorious resurrection day to come, then everything you do in serving the Lord Jesus is in vain. So why is it worth standing firm in belief? 
Well, because Christ has been risen, and so will you be. Why is it worth continuing to labor for the Lord? Because Christ has been risen, and so will you be. And what is that labor for the Lord? We'll just turn over to chapter 16 and verse 10. What is the work of the Lord? Well, in 16 verse 10, we read, When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. Well, the work of the Lord, therefore, is what Paul is doing. It's what Timothy is doing. What do we find them doing uniquely throughout the Scriptures? It's the glorious work of making the gospel known. It's sharing Christ that other people come to know him. That's the work of the Lord Paul is talking about. So 1 Corinthians 15 is a chapter to encourage us always to give ourselves fully to the business of making Christ known. Like Mike was saying, praying for conversions and sharing Jesus. Now you'll be glad to know because you're looking forward to breakfast already that we're just going to look at the last eight verses of the chapter and we're going to see two comforts and one challenge for us. Here's the first comfort, the first motivation as we think about why to give ourselves to the work of the Lord. It's our guaranteed transformation, our guaranteed transformation. Look at verse 50 with me. Paul writes, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Paul's looking forward to that day when Jesus will return and he'll set creation right. It will be perfect from then on in. And Paul says, look, there's a dress code for the new heavens and the new earth. It's not, it's not black tie. It's an imperishable resurrection body. And the problem is, you've got a perishable body now. You've got a body that's decaying and a body that's rotten with sin. You don't naturally fit in this glorious new world to come. You're going to be out of place there in a sin-free, fully flourishing creation. You need a transformed body. A body that will be like the body the Lord Jesus has had since he rose from the dead. A body that's same but different. Paul explains that earlier. Let me read to you verse 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. So when Christ returns, you're going to receive a transformed body. One that will perfectly last forever in a glorious new world. And that transformation, it's not our work. It's not about a trip to the gym or buying Jamie's latest diet book. No, it's the gift of God's grace. Look at verse 51 with me. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound... The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. I love the way Paul uses that expression for Christians who die, that they, they've merely fallen asleep, you know, having a kip whilst we wait to be woken up by Jesus and enjoy forever with him. Sometimes it can feel like getting my teenage son out of bed is like raising the dead. 
But, but what the Lord will do on his return is far more miraculous than that. When the trumpet sounds his presence, the dead in Christ will rise and they will have new bodies. And those of us who are alive in Christ will be transformed before you can even blink, says Paul. That's why I love the picture of being buried. Don't get me wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong about being cremated. It's just I think the burial fits a little bit more with the picture of the Bible. Cremation's come about because we're a bit short on space around here. But creation is a little bit more to do with sort of Eastern ideas of the the body being finished with, but the spirit going on. But but burial is about sowing something in the ground. You, You bury the body into the ground because it's going to be raised again. You're going to need it later. We're going to have a physical body forever and a new creation. It's why uh, graveyards used to be called God's acre. It's because what you've done is you'd sowed God's people into the ground. And then when Jesus returns, there's going to be a great harvest. And out they'll pop out of God's acre. That's what's going to happen. Glorious new bodies for everyone in Christ, the dead and the living. And do you see how certain these verses are? Do you see what Paul keeps saying? Will not all sleep, will be changed, will sound, will be changed. More more than that, it's actually got to happen. It must happen. Verse 53, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. This isn't just a a necessity for our sake. No, no, this word has, has an idea of the divine necessity of God's plan. This is what God says must happen, and God's going to do it, because he always does what he says must happen. It is utterly guaranteed we will be transformed forever to enjoy perfect new bodies. Can you you imagine what that day will be like? In a moment, from the frailty and the heartache and the struggle of the earthly life to the glory and the perfection of the heavenly life, It'll be the best day ever, won't it? It'll be better than the day you got married, you know, the day you ended with that slight jaw ache because you've done the genuine cheesy grin all day. It'll be better than the day you got your first paycheck, you know, when you did your first job and you, you actually got real money and you thought, I'm the richest man and woman in the world. It'll be better than the day you, you held your, your first child in your arms and, and the tears of joy uncontrollably flowed down your face. A day of such joy that we we just can't comprehend it. I actually don't know what will be better, the end of all suffering or the end of all sin. Because you see, my transformed, your transformed body, it just won't be a question of physically perfect forever, but, but our hearts will be perfect. Our loves will be perfect. Our minds will be perfect. The Bible says we'll know God even as we are known. I guess for me, I think it's the sin. I think it is probably the sin. Never struggling with sin again. Wouldn't that be great? That feeling that, that probably I, I too often have, that, that overwhelms me, that I'm, I'm not the man I should be, the man I want to be, the man God calls me to be. The, the shame. Maybe you have the shame too. The shame when you, you hurt those you love the most. Isn't that ironic? We're just so good at that. Never doing that again. The burden that our selfish hearts cause us. I, mean, I think, I think it will be great to have a fully functioning body. Don't, don't get me wrong. That will be great. But loving God with heart and mind perfectly? 
Because think, think, think how John puts it in 1 John 3, 2. This is what the Apostle John says. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Not, not just face to face with Jesus, but like Jesus. And who's going to be there? Did you see that in verse 51? Who's going to be there? We're all going to be there. We will not sleep. We will all be changed. All of us together. Everyone you've ever served the Lord Jesus Christ with. Everyone who rejoices in Jesus with you. On that day, we, we will struggle with sin no more. If you're, trusting, if you're trusting in Jesus tonight, however much you feel you're clinging to him by your fingertips, you'll be there. Everyone, all of us, not just us, everyone who knows Christ will be there. We won't even know what it is to be in the presence of sin. We won't feel the bondage of decay anymore. You won't drag yourself out of bed wondering what that new ache is. Every, every meal will, will taste like the sweetest. Every relationship will be filled with laughter and love and joy and nothing else. That's, that's, that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? That is guaranteed. Why? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. That's a great and glorious future. So firstly, it's our guaranteed transformation. But, but more than that, there's going to be a, a glorious triumph on that day. Did you see that in verse 54? When this has happened, when the imperishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and when the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. I say our triumph, but actually this victory has got nothing to do with us, has it? Did you see that in verse 56? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the reason that there's, there's death in the world is because we are those who, from Adam, have rejected God's law, rejected his good word to us. And the wages of sin is death. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect law keeper, the one who always obeyed his father in heaven has now come. He's taken the curse of the law upon himself. He has borne our death in our place. And now he has risen. And therefore we have victory in him. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. If you want to know what your future's like, says Paul, you've got to look to the past of Jesus. The sin-smashing, death-defeating, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, you see, death isn't just defeated. Do you see what it says in verse 54? It's swallowed up. It's gone. It's disappeared forever. All that's left for us to do in verse 57 is to give thanks to God. That's all we're going to be doing. There's nothing for us to do to enjoy this glorious triumph over death. And do you notice the, the song Paul picks out of his Old Testament playlist for that day? It comes in verse 55 from Hosea 13. Where, O death, is your victory? 
Where, O oh death, is your sting? Every day, death makes a mockery of our lives. It, it ends the intimacy of relationship. It robs us of those we love. It brings pain and emptiness. It cuts short our plans. It's great this morning. First text I received this morning from my sister-in-law. Jesus is risen. Hallelujah. Her husband uh, died quite suddenly three, four years ago, age 59, just before he retired from the city. They had great plans for what they were going to do together for the rest of their lives. It leaves us heartbroken, doesn't it, death? But not hopeless. Because on that day, the day when Jesus returns and we are all raised, we will sing with the Lord in Hosea, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? We'll mock death. Who's got the last word now then? Death. As one preacher put it, we'll trash talk death. Is that the best you got, death? You're not so big and hard now, are you? Death terminated forever. Death with an eternal global ban. It's been quite a few notable and tragic deaths in our churches over the last year. We've heard about Harry Davis. Do you know Harry Davis? He's going to be there singing this song. Roy Goodenough, he's going to be there singing this song. Pam Neen going to be there singing this song. John Tilson, Simon Forshaw, Dave Reddington from Cornerstone, they're going to be there singing this song. Alec May going to be there singing this song. Where, oh, death is your victory. <laughs> Where, oh, death is your sting. You're not so big and hard now, are you? Why? Because Jesus is risen. That's the victory of Jesus Christ our Lord. As one friend of mine put it before the Lord took him through cancer, age 61, on that day, no more hospitals, no more hearses, no more hankies, forever. That's a glorious triumph, isn't it? I remember visiting my Uncle John in hospital. He had prostate cancer. He, he was a big man, but... You know what cancer's like? It left him painfully thin, hunched up in the chair in a lot of pain. I asked him, how do you cope with the pain each day, John? And he simply replied, the journey is difficult and unknown, but the end is certain and glorious because Jesus is risen. Now, now if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, is this a future you like the sound of? A future where... The death that you fear ceases to be a reality in your life forever, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. We'd love you to share in this future. We'd love you to, when you are raised by the Lord Jesus on the last day, face not the terrible judgment of God against the way you have ignored him, but face the glorious, beautiful thing of coming to know God perfectly as he knows you and seeing in Jesus the face of a friend the face of a savior the face of your lover the face of the one who died for you but you must come to Jesus now if you want to see him like that then but for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ here's our application it's where we started it's where we're going to end it's our great task we've seen our guaranteed 
transformation, our glorious triumph. Here's our great task, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. You see, we need a steely resolve to stick with the truth of the resurrection. They certainly need it in Corinth. There appear to be even those within the church who are saying, look, all this future on focus on the, the, the resurrection, it's all a bit fantastical, isn't it? And we see that in chapter 15 and verse 12. Do you see what they say? But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you, you guys in the church, say there is no resurrection of the dead? You know, we quite like talking about Jesus in the past, but this stuff about the future, I mean, that's pie in the sky when you die. We want some stuff about now, Paul. It seems that in Corinth they were obsessed with sort of the spiritual blessings they could get in the here and now. So, so they'd rather lost sight of the future, the heaven. They thought, look, you can have heaven on earth. Every sickness can be healed. Every church service will be an experience of ecstatic worship. And that's, that's like, it's, it's what it is here at Chessington every week. Really, no, we, every, every time they strike up, it's ecstatic worship. Maybe. Life, life. It should be one fantastic period of prolonged joy. So, so, so leave that future stuff out, Paul. It's, it's just not so irrelevant. I need the Jesus who makes me happy on Monday morning. I need the Jesus who makes me content in my life today. I need the Jesus who's going to sort out my kids' education. I need the Jesus who'll give me the soft-focused family. Leave that future slightly weird resurrection from the dead stuff out. Let's just talk about here and now. I just wonder if, if that might be quite a relevant issue for us today. Do you think we might have as Christians brought too much into our culture? So every time we go to the doctor, we expect them to be able to fix us? You know, we're in our late 80s and we're surprised that, that we're breaking down. The Bible says you're in bondage to decay. Afraid that your brain's been shrinking since you were a baby and your skeleton's been crumpling since you were 30. It's downhill all the way. But I think, I think we've bought into our culture. We, we sort of expect to be healthy all the time. And we've born to our culture that, that sort of says, this life is it, and therefore we can make it work. So if we look at the telly in the adverts of the, the sort of athletic-looking 65, 70-year-old skipping down the beach with his still very trim wife and adoring grandchildren, and we think, yeah, yeah, that, that could be for me. And we live for it, as though it's going to be reality. And therefore, in our church culture, a lot of the time what we want is the Jesus who makes my life better now. And this idea of a life of, well, how does Paul describe it in verse 58? Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And what's that work like? Because you know your labor in the Lord's not in vain. Did you think you could sell on a Sunday? Hey, I've got a great idea, guys. We're going to labor fully with everything we've got. That just, just doesn't quite pedal as much as I've got this idea guys if you believe in Jesus tomorrow is going to be a lot happier no really and everything will work tomorrow I wonder if we're, we're, we're like the Corinthians we just it's not very sexy all this serving the Lord and suffering business so we soft pedal the future but Paul's adamant the, the resurrection of the dead in the future is a gospel issue 
It actually doesn't just affect what you believe about the future, it affects the way you live in the present. Because if, if you're not thinking about the future, well, do you see what they're saying in Corinth in verse 32? Paul says, I, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, probably not literally wild beasts, but, but more that the pressure of preaching the gospel in that pagan environment where the riot came for him, with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And they're right, aren't they? I mean, if this life is all there is, what is the point of living a suffering life for Christ? If this life is all there is, why make it harder for yourself by trying to be different from the world around you and getting grief for it? I mean, why make it harder for yourself by shortening the weekend and and missing out on sports clubs and going to church? If this life is all there is, don't bother doing that. And what's, what's the point of following Christ if it doesn't make this life better? If he gets in the way, then take a break. The problem is that the gospel is more like oxygen than chocolate. We, we want to treat the, the good news about Jesus as though we don't have to stand firm in it, as though we don't have to be moved from it, as though we can, can pick and choose. I was, I was rather nautingly trying to think about different varieties of Christianity and what sort of chocolate they'd be. Bear with me, everyone gets it in this illustration. So if I, if I hit you first, I apologize. I'm coming up to myself at the end. So, so I thought the Roman Catholics, they're probably a bit like a Mars bar. You know, they're, they're like a traditional chocolate, but usually after you've, after you've eaten one, you feel quite guilty. So I think that's, you know. Then, um, then I thought the Charismatics, they're, they're probably like a crunch, crunchy. You know, they're very, very, very sweet, but, but occasionally a little, little lack of substance in the crunchy. Uh, the liberals were undoubtedly a Snickers. We all know why the liberals are a Snickers. Look like chocolate on the outside, bite into it, discover it's full of nuts. <laughs> and, and probably the evangelicals, evangelicals like me, we are a bar of Bourneville. We want to stick to the basics, we're very solid, and we're rather bitter about it all. Yeah, it's Christianity. It's a box of chocolates. You pick and choose your truth. You can have what you want. It doesn't really matter. You just opt in. But, but no, the gospel's more like oxygen than chocolate. But Paul's saying, no, it's a matter of not just life and death, but eternal life and death. No gospel, no life. See, oxygen is oxygen. If you try nitrogen or helium or carbon monoxide, uh, they kill you. They don't bring life. They bring death. And that's why Paul says at the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter, you've got to stand firm. Let nothing move you. It matters what you believe. And only the true gospel of resurrection life forever is going to genuinely give you resurrection life forever. So so it matters what you believe and it matters what you tell your friends about Jesus. That's why Paul spends over 50 verses in this chapter demonstrating that Jesus rose and that we will rise. So that we will, 58 again, stand firm, let nothing move you from this gospel. But do you see how standing firm, I love this, it's like a Bible paradox. Standing firm is never a stationary thing in the Bible, it's always about an activity. So what do you do? You stand firm, let nothing move you, by always giving yourself fully to the work of the Lord. You see, the the word gospel literally means news, good news. By definition, the gospel has to be shared. It's not news unless you're sharing it with someone who doesn't know it. It ceases to be news. And therefore, Paul says to the Corinthians, give yourself fully to this work of making 
the good news about Jesus known. Why? Because your labor's not in vain. It's actually never in vain. Because, well, he's been telling us in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has risen. So there is a resurrection in the future. So gospel work is never wasted work because it's what everyone will be about in eternity. Where they stand with Christ. It's why the the work of the Lord is unique compared to everything else you do in life. It is the only work that will last forever. The only work that won't decay. It's why one small child coming to understand and trust in Jesus at at a Bible holiday club is of infinitely more value than the entirety of the rental on the shard or the Mona Lisa or the crown jewels. They're all going to burn. But one small child will live forever with Jesus if they come to trust him. It's why, it's why one older person coming to know the comfort of God at your lunch club or, or your older person's group is infinitely more value than the, the best paid job in the city or the best degree at Oxford for your kid or the place at the best school your money can buy. Because that education, Jesus is not going to say anything when we stand before him about education or or status. No, no, all that matters is do you trust him? And so that that person will live forever with the God who comforts them through this life. There is no more powerful work than the work of the gospel because only the gospel brings life out of death forever. There is no more precious work because only the gospel brings perfection out of decay forever. There is no more passionate work because only the gospel brings divine love in the face of our deep hostility forever. There is no more permanent work because only those grasped by God through the preaching of the gospel will be taken home to be with the Lord forever. So Paul says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Pour out your life in this business of sharing Christ. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Oh, we need to hear that, don't we? Because it is labor in the Lord. But gospel work is not light duties. It's not cruise control life. It's not even comfort. It's a hard slog. People keep asking me, how are you? And I say, oh, I'm tired. Then I've stopped saying that because I realize everyone's tired. Gospel work's tiring. Life's tiring. Gospel work is labor, but it's worth it. Because it's the only thing you'll ever do that you can guarantee is not in vain. I think it's one of those dangers that we have maybe about talking about church growth. As though the uh, really important issue is how many people are in our buildings on a Sunday. I wonder if we'd be better if, like the Apostle Paul, we, we here had a picture of what matters is where people stand with the Lord on Resurrection Day. I Don't get me wrong. The reason we want our churches to grow is we want more people to know Christ. But church growth, it just sounds less urgent to me than, are you ready to face Jesus when you're raised from the dead? I wonder if I'd give myself more fully to the work of the Lord if I had a better motive than more people turning up on a Sunday. If, if when I walked into to Lidl, I saw everyone today in the light of that day when we're all raised. And if I saw the eternal significance of speaking to them about the Lord Jesus. 
So when I got into the conversation with the woman on the till, I was thinking, this message that I have could change your eternity so, so that you will be transformed, I can guarantee that, to be perfect forever and enjoy an extraordinary triumph, a great triumph over death forever. Doesn't that sound more exciting than we need to do some church growth? See, I need to believe that faith in the risen Lord Jesus is the only thing that guarantees a transformed life in eternity. The faith in the Lord Jesus means a glorious triumph over death in eternity. That only the gospel can bring about that change. What do you need? What do our churches need? What do I need? Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because Jesus is risen. And so will you and everyone else one day. Let's pray together. Maybe there's someone who you long to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who you fear for on that day. Why don't you just take an opportunity now to bring them before the Lord yourself. Father in heaven, we praise you about the certainty of our future in Christ. That because he has won the victory through his death and resurrection, we know that we will be transformed into glorious resurrection bodies to live forever. We will enjoy the the wonder of death defeated in eternity. We will spend all of our tomorrows in your presence, rejoicing in your great love for us. Please, our Father, in the light of that future, by the power of your Spirit, enable us to give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord now that we might make the eternity-changing gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ known to the lost around us and so see them have hope, genuine hope, resurrection hope as well. And we pray it for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.